What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. If you're listening in real time, if you're not, get listening in real time. It's so much more fun than catching up on the replays. But excited to answer more listener questions from all of you amazing people in our community. You guys are fantastic. If it weren't for you, this honestly wouldn't exist. I wouldn't probably have the motivation to keep answering questions and putting out content, but everything you guys do to support us and we're here to support you guys. It's fantastic and absolutely love the community. So we're going to be answering some of your guys' listener questions and I think we should just jump right in. Of course, I want to always give the disclaimer. This is for entertainment purposes only. This is not investment advice. This is not planning advice, tax advice, or any other sort of advice. Because honestly, I don't think you should take advice from anyone on the radio, on the TV, in a blog, no one, unless they know you and understand your situation. If you are looking for a financial planner, we would love to work with you at Physician Wealth Services. You can check us out at physicianwealthservices.com and book a free intro call and hang out with me while we talk a little bit about what we do and how we do it. See if we're a good fit to work together. All right, now let's jump in and hear our first listener question. Hi, Ryan. First and foremost, I want to say thank you for all the knowledge that you have imparted to me, as well as countless physicians across the U.S. and quite frankly, worldwide. I was recently reviewing my wife and I's financial plan and realized that our annual savings goal can be completely accomplished using tax-advantaged vehicles. My wife is also a practicing physician. We both have 401ks to which our respective employers graciously contribute to the maximum 56000 annually. My wife also has access to a 457 as well as our backdoor Roth IRAs. In reviewing this, I'm a little concerned if we do join the FIRE movement and choose to leave medicine early, to which we'd be looking at early withdrawals from our various savings. How do you suggest that one diversifies their retirement savings in a mix of taxable and um, tax-protected vehicles? Okay, so I think this is a fantastic question, and we actually see this a lot. Hey, I'm maxing out all my tax-deferred accounts, but what happens if I want to retire before 59 and a half? Now, I probably could do an entire show on this because there is a ton to unpack, but I think I'm going to try to hit a lot of the high points here. And fair warning, I do want to probably give out a little bit of math as I go through this. So if you are completely adverse to math, I apologize. But Remember, Uncle Sam invests alongside you as you're putting away money for retirement, right? This is the whole pre-tax concept. You're putting money from your paycheck. You don't see it hit your bank account. It leaves from your paycheck. It's pre-tax. You max it out. Well, at some point, as Uncle Sam is investing, could be 30, 40 years, depending on how much of a career you have ahead of you and how long you've been putting money away. But at some point, Uncle Sam wants his money. So either you're going to start taking it out voluntarily to live off of and creating a paycheck from your investments, right? Because you no longer are working or they're going to require it with required minimum distributions or RMDs. And I won't go too much in depth there, but at age 72, they're going to say, hey, here's this formula. You have to take out this amount. So traditional retirement thinking, you would still be working into your 60s. So really pulling money out before 59 and a half is a non-issue. No one's doing that. They're still working into their 60s. But the FIRE movement has really turned that whole concept upside down. Now, I love the FI part and I don't like the RE part really, but I won't jump into that whole mix here. 
but it poses a problem when traditional planning now doesn't work the same way. And this is one of the main reasons that you should be saving outside of your tax deferred accounts. Honestly, everyone should be saving regardless if you're going for fire or not outside of those accounts because you can start playing some games around the tax side of things. So like I give the warning, I think this is where I want to go into some math and I'm going to try to make it simple. These aren't going to be real numbers. I just want to illustrate a point. So let's say that you needed $10,000 a month to live off of. That'd be $120,000 a year. If all of that money, let's say, was in the Roth accounts, the Roth setting, you could just take out $10,000 a month and use it as you need, and you wouldn't have any tax issues at all because you'd already paid the tax on that money to put it into the Roth, right? It was done with after-tax dollars. Okay, that sounds cool. Most of you, including myself, are not going to have all of our retirement stuff in a Roth setting because that'd mean you've been paying tax on this whole time and that would also be a bummer. So let's go the other way. Let's say like in your situation, everything is pre-tax. And again, this is not real numbers, but let's assume that your effective tax rate is 20%. Well, if you have to take that $120,000 out to live, you also need to take out the money for the taxes. And it turns out, let's say that you need to withdraw $150,000 every year to live off the 120000 Well, that doesn't seem like much fun, right? Uncle Sam wants his money. He's been investing alongside of you. So now you're going to have to take out that money to pay him plus live. That means you need a lot more money in the pre-tax setting. And we have no idea what tax rates are actually going to be. I'm using fake numbers here. Like with us printing trillions and trillions of dollars, tax rates are probably going to go up from here. But we don't know what that's going to look like in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But let's just now assume that we had a combo of those. And let's say that the tax rates, to illustrate this example, again, fake numbers, but it was 12% up until $80,000 of income. And then let's say the next marginal tax rate was 22%. Currently what we have, give or take. And it'd be really nice to not go over that $80,000 because that's taxed at 12%, let's say for the example, and then every dollar over 80,000. So that 80,000 and first dollar is now taxed at 22%, not 12%. Well, that's a really big deal and a huge difference. So if you could take from your pre-tax bucket that 80,000, so you're paying 12% on the 80,000 and then anything above that, right? You still need 40,000 to hit that 120 you need to live. If you could take that out of a Roth setting, then you would still be in the 12% bracket and that extra 40,000, you wouldn't pay 22% on or $8,800 in tax. Again, fake numbers, but you're getting the idea. Now, most of you still might not have a ton of money in the Roth setting and you're actually asking about a taxable account. And I think the taxable accounts are a great idea for this too, because you could potentially, let's say tax loss harvest to offset the winners and the losers and maybe free up enough cash flow that you would have a net zero in tax, right? And that might potentially make up the whole 40,000 deficit that you had since you only took $80,000 from the tax deferred accounts. So you could see why I'm saying we could probably do a whole show on this because there's a lot of different steps and strategies. And honestly, it's probably several shows worth, but I wanted to illustrate at least one point that you need to do more than just save in your tax deferred accounts. Those accounts should be the minimum, honestly, that you're doing. And that's why I always try to bring things back to your take-home pay. I know some of you like to 
think about, oh, I'm saving a percentage of my gross. That's fine, but you should be putting money in your tax deferred accounts. What we're talking about is when you take home pay, your savings from that, because while your tax deferred accounts are absolutely needed and mission critical, it doesn't just stop there. So hopefully that helps you. That was a great question. Let's hear from our next listener. Hey, Ryan, this is Robert. I really enjoy hearing your podcast. So congratulations on all the success. My question is about 529. I heard your recent podcast about 529 and you said that you were in Utah, my 529. My question is whether the California 529 plan is competitive. I was just curious why you as a California resident didn't go with a California plan. You did say that there is no state tax advantage for the California plan, but when comparing the fees, they seem pretty similar, if not a little bit better for California. In any case, just curious as to your thoughts on the California plan. Obviously, that's where I am planning to invest my money for our uh, new kid. And also, if later it turns out that California or another state changes their plan and becomes a bad plan, can you roll that 529 over to another state's 529 plan, sort of transfer your assets? Anyhow, thanks for listening and look forward to your response. Again, appreciate all the advice from your various outlets. Okay, so you're correct. I do live in California and I don't use California's 529. I use Utah's plan, which has now been rebranded, I think a year or two ago to my 529. And California's is the scholar share 529, I believe. And all the plans can change any given year. That's why it's always really important to go look at all the different investment options out there and the accounts because things change. So California's plans have changed and ebbed and flowed. Investment options have been updated and they're not all terrible, but I'll be honest, a majority of them still are terrible. And they have a few types of strategies specifically in California's 529 plan. One of them is an active strategy, which they have actually a couple versions of this active, to be honest. And again, this is not investment advice, so please don't take this as investment advice, but just stay away from the active stuff. The strategy is poor. The costs are two, three, maybe even four times more expensive, 0.5% or higher. The other strategy is by the active enrollment year, which I would say think of as like a target date fund for the 529 accounts. And while it's probably the easiest to choose this option, this is where it gets a little dirty on their end. They have an active and a passive, but it's really confusing on their website to know which one you're choosing and how it works. And the common person, not the nerd like me, is going to go in and be like, oh, cool, active enrollment, and you click it. Well, those funds are 0.5% or higher in expense ratios, which to me is really gross that they're doing this. Now, they have some passive strategies that are much cheaper. The options are quite limited, but the fees are actually in line with other good plans at around 0.15%. But like I said, the plan is not easy to navigate and to find out what you're actually invested in. And you actually have to go to a third-party site to even figure out what makes up those funds. So I, I clicked on a few things just because I hadn't looked at it, honestly, in about six months and still hard to navigate, still not fully clear. But I went to go look at whatever their U.S. equity was. Turns out it's a TIA fund. But again, I couldn't click in. I couldn't see what the fund is, what it's made up of, how many positions in the portfolio. 
which this one had about 2,900, which is good. It's mimicking the whole equity market. It's still not everything, but it's a good, at least attempt to this. But it's really frustrating that most people aren't nerds like myself and are going to dig through the details and see all this. Like, I don't understand why the plan isn't just transparent. It doesn't make any sense. So with all that said, California's plan, I'd say is a solid B or B plus, right? It's not terrible. There are far worse plans than that. California, surprisingly, is not at the bottom, even though they mess up in a lot of other areas. But it's just not an A for me. And that's why I chose to go elsewhere. So look, if my 529 changes their plans, I'll jump in a second. No love lost there. I'll go to wherever the best deal is. But I liked my 529. I actually liked College Backer that sits on top of my 529 because it makes easy, it makes it easier for grandparents and aunts and uncles and people to help contribute to my kids' accounts than it would be if they had to write a check or open up an account on their own and it gets a little messy. They can do all this online. And that's what I like about it. Now, I'm not saying to go contribute to my kids' 529, but as an example, you can go check out collegebacker.com slash Wyatt and you can see how easy the portal is. It's a landing page. You click a button, you're already there. My mom can figure it out in about two and a half minutes to put money in the 529 plan. That is a huge win to me. And that's why I chose that one. Now, if my 529 changes and it becomes terrible and California is way better, I will switch. And don't be afraid of switching. The last part of your question is, can you move this stuff later and how easy is it? It's super easy. You just have to have the new 529 plan that you choose to go and grab and move the assets over to from the old one to the new one. And they can do that. They do it behind the scenes. Look, they're very excited to get new assets in because they earn money on that. So they're going to go find anywhere you have money and they'll be happy to help you transfer it all in. So don't worry about that. Hopefully it's helpful. For those of you that don't have 529s and you're looking at opening one and make sure first that your state doesn't have a deduction. Please, not every state has them. Some states do. So please check, make sure your state doesn't have one. And if it doesn't, highly recommend you go to College Backer. And I think you can go to collegebacker.com slash financial residency. And I think they even give a $25 sign up bonus for all of our listeners. So hopefully that was helpful. Let's go jump into our third community member asking a question to us. Hey, Ryan. Thank you for everything you do with this podcast. I was wondering if you could help me wrap my mind around this topic. I am an employed surgeon and have access to a non-governmental 457 plan. Uh, Now, the plan hits two of the three positives uh, as far as pretty low costs and they have good investment options inside of it. However, the disbursement is not great. The distribution is not great. It comes as a lump sum or in the process of potentially changing that. But as of right now, that's the only option. So my question is, what is the real difference between maxing out the 457 versus using a taxable account to put that money in? What I'm trying to wrap my head around is that if I put pre-tax money in the 457, but have to pay the, the higher tax rate on the lump sum withdrawal, how does that compare with putting post-tax money, but then paying tax on the interest that money accrues? Thank you so much for your time and then helping me understand this topic. I really like this question. And unfortunately, it means that it's bad thing for you with your 457 having bad distribution options. I don't want to get crazy into the weeds because there's a ton of other factors at play that I just can't acknowledge all of them in this short segment. 
but it really stinks that your 457 has a lump sum option. That's somewhat typical, which also stinks. And it would be really nice if they changed that. But I think one thing I want to say before we dig into this is I'm proud of you for actually looking into this because the majority of you, unfortunately, haven't looked into the distribution options to see, should I do this or not? Most of you just said, oh, I get a tax deduction and you pile money into there and you'll figure it out later. We don't like that strategy, right? That's the equivalent of being an ostrich in something in personal finance and you'll figure it out later. That whole figure it out later is something we need to get out of our vocabulary. But just like there's no such thing as the dream home, which again, I'm sorry for all of you that think that there is, but there's not. The average person moves within seven years. It's probably foolish to think that you will be in the same job or the same employer your entire career. And again, yes, just like some of you have lived in your home or will live in your home for 30 years, some of you will actually have the same employer your whole career, but the majority of you won't. And if you plan on leaving your employer soon or even within the next five or so years, I personally, again, this is not investment advice, but I personally would not invest in the 457 is just because it's going to create this massive tax issue for you later on down the road. I would instead probably direct the funds into a taxable account and just keep saving there. Now, the 457 is nice because it's a deferred compensation plan and you get the tax deduction in the year that you contribute. But that game ends when you leave the employer and you now have potentially a hundred thousand or hundreds of thousands of dollars in that account that might then actually push you if you take that lump sum distribution into a much higher tax bracket that really defeats the purpose. The longer you're going to be in the plan, the better the opportunity would be to stay and contribute into that plan. Now, if you think that your entire career is going to be at that one institution, that changes all these assumptions quite a bit, and it's probably worth exploring further. Now, I think a taxable account should be used for pretty much all of you, almost regardless of what you're doing and how you're investing, because you're going to need to have more savings that isn't tax deferred. So you can play that tax game I mentioned earlier in the show. So make sure, one, you're doing your IRA contributions yearly, and maybe you can hedge your bet. Again, this is not, you know, this is informational purposes only. It's not investment advice, but it's something that, you know, can help your thinking on this is maybe hedge your bets. And maybe put half the money in a 457 and half the money in a taxable account. I'm assuming you couldn't just max out the 457 and put an equal amount in the taxable account because I don't know what's going on. And this is getting a little close to recommendations on my end, which these aren't. Right, So I have to be careful and make sure you don't confuse this as a recommendation. But hopefully this will get you thinking a little bit more on how you can approach this. All right. Our last caller actually has pretty much three questions. A short one and two good ones. So this will be the last one for this show. Let's jump in. Hi, Ryan. I'll call myself Elsa. I wanted to ask a few financial questions. First of all, I was curious if you could share the specific website information and account type that you recommend at Allied Bank when you were referencing the interest rate that you were a fan of previously. I'm having a hard time finding that in a Google search. And then the other questions are about some retirement accounts. So specifically, how you would recommend someone choose the target date retirement fund in a Roth IRA if they're interested in using target date retirement funds. I currently in the 2060 option, and I would be in my mid-70s at that time. 
would you recommend actually pushing that back to the 2065 fund with the rationale being that you would want to use the Roth IRA funds later in retirement? Or is it too early to be making a decision like that at this time? And then for my taxable accounts, I have a taxable account with Fidelity that's invested exclusively in the Vanguard Index Fund or VTI. And I didn't really put a lot of thought into whether I should have just opened that account with Vanguard directly. And so I was curious to hear if you think I should actually make that switch if there's fees involved of some kind through Fidelity. I couldn't really figure it out by trying to look through their website. And uh, finally, if you could suggest some information to review about how to learn how to tax last harvest in the taxable account. I've been able to figure out things like backdoor Roth IRAs by using the step-by-step guides available through some other websites and tax loss harvesting was something that's still a mystery to me. And now that I have a taxable account, I wanted to learn more about how to do that, but it's not been quite clear to me how I start with figuring that out. So thank you so much. Those are my questions and I look forward to hearing your suggestions and listening to your future podcasts. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for calling in these three questions. I'm really excited. So first, I'm not sure what show you're referring to because I've pretty much talked about Ally on like, I don't know, every show. I love Ally. They don't pay me. They don't get anything for it. I just like Ally. Right now, if you go to ally.com and you click on checking and saving, and then you click on either interest checking or online savings, that's usually what I'm referring to. That is their basic checking account and their basic online savings account. Now the rates change daily. And since rates have plummeted, since I've pretty much started this podcast, like over three years ago, you're probably going to see different rates than I've mentioned at any point before this recording. But as of this recording, the rates are for the savings account 0.6% and it's 0.1% in the checking for balances under 15K and 0.25% for balances over 15K. Most of you, should not keep that much money in your checking accounts. We're talking like one times your monthly expense, maybe one and a half if you want to give a little bit more buffer. So you might not hit that 0.25, but it shouldn't matter because the bulk of your stuff would be actually in savings or actually getting invested. Not super over concerned with the rates and what they're doing. All rates have been you know lowered and, and plummeting, especially since COVID. So I wouldn't be shopping around like crazy. I'd keep everything simple like we've talked about dozens and dozens of times. Thinking about simple, your second question here is interesting because I've received it actually a few times. I don't think I've ever talked about it on air and going with the the same concept as last one, keep things simple. So choose the custodian that can hold your taxable account, your traditional IRA, your Roth IRA, right? You need both those to do the backdoor Roth contributions, assuming you could do that. And if it happens to have like your work-sponsored plan, like a 401k in there, then all the better. It will likely be that your work account, especially if you're changing jobs frequently, will be at another custodian, another institution, but keeping everything together is ideal. So let's say that you, and I don't use Fidelity. I don't have a Fidelity account. We custody all of our client accounts. All my accounts are at TD Ameritrade Institutional. So I'm going to go off some elementary knowledge at Fidelity. But let's say your work accounts at Fidelity, then I would keep everything at Fidelity. And I don't have Fidelity, but a quick look at their site tells me that all their ETFs are free to trade. 
That would include Vanguard ETFs if you needed to trade Vanguard. Vanguard is a brand. It's a great brand. It's a, just a name though. It's like Nike for a pair of shoes. Like other people make shoes that are just as good, but Nike's got a great brand. Vanguard's got a fantastic brand, but there are other things that mimic the strategies of passive investing. So don't always get hooked up or caught up that you have to own Vanguard. Now, again, this is not investment advice, but looking, I know that Fidelity offers these 0% expense ratio funds. They were the first major custodian to do this right? It's not investment advice, but the points to say is that you don't have to just own Vanguard. You might be able to own other things that mimic Vanguard's strategies were. They all have different labels or packaging, if you will. But, and it also doesn't just have to be at Fidelity. So you don't have to move your Vanguard funds to Vanguard to own Vanguard stuff. Not like it's saving you or costing you any more money. Uh, Like I said, we custody everything at TD Ameritrade and we own Vanguard funds and I paid $0 in trading fees to own those Vanguard ETFs. So all that to say, keep it simple. Absolutely keep it simple. Now in March 16th, to be exact, of 2020, there you go, that's really exact because I'm a nerd. I did a show called Uncertain Times Call for Tax Loss Harvesting. This is really on your third question here that this is when the market was extremely volatile and I received, I don't know, at least 20 emails about how do I tax loss harvest? I was very happy that none of the emails were like, oh my gosh, I need to put all my money under the mattress. It was nice that all of you out there were trying to figure out how to take advantage of that, which is great. And in that whole show, I went over why you should tax loss harvest when you shouldn't a little bit about some of the common mistakes that I see physicians make when doing it. And I went in a little bit on how to do it. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to that show. Again, it was March 16th called Uncertain Times Call for Tax Loss Harvesting. And I think that's going to help you a ton in understanding that third part of your question. So guys and gals, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate all of you just being a part of our community. I would love to answer more of these questions. I think I'm going to start integrating this more into the show of just answering instead of doing a whole show on questions is just trying to answer a question, maybe every show, So the way that you could be a part of the show is to go to financialresonancy.com slash question. I have received probably thousands of emails over the past few years with tons of great questions, and I really don't want to read the question myself and then answer them. I would really like to play the voicemail and then answer them because I like to break up the voices. I like people to know that other people are out there. It's not just me creating the content. Like you guys want to hear this content and I want to help you out. So go to financialresidency.com slash question, ask your question. I'll make sure I get it on air. There's still a bunch of questions that are in queue. Don't worry. I'm getting answers to those. We'll make sure we do another show on it. But again, thank you guys so much for being a part of this. Really appreciate all you have a great week and I'll catch you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers.